Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. Todd Casey, welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. It's a huge honor to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. Always, uh, always a pleasure chatting and uh, honored to be here. So, tell me a little bit about your background. What's your history? Where did you come from, and how did you get into this field? Yeah, yeah I'm from. Um, I mean, it's of course a loaded question because it's like, how far back do you go? But I'm from Lowell, Massachusetts. Um, you know, art for me started probably with my brother. Him and I shared a bedroom for about eight or nine years. Uh, he's three and a half years older than I am, but his name is Chris. And uh, Chris used to get, a, you know, stuff from my aunts and uncles uh, because he was really good at it. And I think perhaps I got jealous or perhaps I wanted to be like him. I think it's probably a combination of both. And the two of us kind of did art a lot as uh, kids. We did pretty much everything together. Um, and then, you know, all through grade school, I won a bunch of awards, um, didn't really take it seriously. Even through high school, I was winning awards. Um, and, you know, I wanted to actually play professional basketball, but, really? uh, well, they weren't going to draft a six foot one, 200 pound backup center who averaged about one point a game. <laughs> uh, yeah. But big Celtics fan here. Uh, but my mom, my mom was actually really good at sports, and um, she showed me how to play a lot of them. And I think I wanted to be like her growing up. And um, she kind of, she kind of helped me out because she basically said, you know, you're already good. Like I was working all the time to try to get really good at basketball, mm -hmm. and she was like, you know, you're not really talented over here. Maybe you want to kind of focus. And in high school, then I won a bunch of awards and scholarships. There's not a lot of um, not a lot of kids from my high school went to college. So when I applied for scholarships, they gave me a ton of them. And and then I applied to MassArt in, in Boston, Massachusetts. And that's kind of um, where it all started. And my brother, who's three and a half years older than me, I convinced him to go back because he was at this kind of dead-end job. So the two of us went to MassArt as freshmen together. Really? And, uh, began, yeah, began our career as uh, artists. Did he become an artist too? He did. You know, the interesting thing about Chris and I is that we're, we're tight and, you know, um, we went to mass art together and, um, we've kind of followed each other. Um, so not to jump too far ahead, but I ended up, um, you know, we went to four years of mass art together in Boston, Massachusetts. It's about 45 minutes Southeast of Lowell. And then from there, I moved to New York City to train as an il uh, to be an illustrator. I was a failed illustrator, but that's what I went to school for. Mm -hmm. um, but Chris went to school for graphic design. Um, but eventually, in about two thousand eight, well, there's a little bit more to the story. But I worked at Ralph Lauren as a as a computer artist, and Chris got a job there too because of uh, me and my connections. And he moved to New York, and we were both working at Ralph Lauren for years together. Oh. I ended up quitting. He's still, he's still there. 
but we're both in art. Okay. So he's doing commercial art right now. Yeah. And I did it for a while. Like I, I, I had this kind of like, you know, I've always worked at least two to three jobs and, um, I kind of studied at the atelier and then I was kind of at polo and then I was back and forth mm -hmm. doing this kind of between the two to pay the bills. So, right. but we can get into it. I don't want to jump too far ahead. Right. Right. No, I'm no, let's talk about that now. So what is your day to day like now? How do you spend your time? Yeah. Well, so my day to day now is, um, I guess I'll try to get caught up in the polo side of it because there's a lot more schooling in the middle. I don't, should I start there? And no, wherever you want, wherever you want, man, just whatever. Yeah. All right. So we'll go back to mass art. So mass art, I graduated, graduated in 2001. Um, I got a degree in illustration. I wanted to be a freelance illustrator, probably kids books. Mm -hmm. Um, I moved to Boston and then I got an opportunity to move to New York city. Uh, and a friend was working as, as a waitress and she said, if, if do you want to move down, we need a roommate. And I said, if you can get me a job, I'll do it. Right. And she was working at the plaza as a waitress. So kind of like serendipitously, she got me this job because the manager was in love with her hmm. and he, she just said, hire him. And he said, okay. <laughs> and he did. So in 2002 or 2003, I moved down to New York. I was a failed illustrator. Um, what does that mean? You were a, a failed illustrator. I, you know, I came out of art school and I didn't, I could draw, but I couldn't draw really well. And I didn't know color really well. And I wasn't fast, you know, I wasn't developed mm. and I was trying to get these kind of like jobs. Um, but it just, nobody was, nobody was saying, yeah, I got a couple small jobs, but I was a waiter. You know, everybody mm -hmm. says that they're an illustrator, but it's like, no, you're a waiter. You, that's how you make your living. Right. Know? So an opportunity came about and um, a friend of mine was working at Ralph Lauren and he said, do you want to work in the art department here? And I said, yeah, that's better than waiting tables, uh, even though it was at the Plaza Hotel in New York, which was cool. But um, in 2004, I started at Polo, worked there for about a year, realized I didn't want to work in the corporate world. Um, and then at that time, I think The Incredibles, the movie came out and I was a huge fan of them and a buddy of mine was into animation. He was going to grad school at the Academy of Art in San Francisco. And uh, the two of us applied together and we both got accepted because they accept 100% of the applicants. <laughs> uh -huh. So I thought um, maybe that'd be good to kind of like go and get a full-time job doing that rather than like waiting tables. So in 2005, I went out to San Francisco and um, I was going to be a 3D animator, but I opened up the program Maya for like one time and was like, no, no way, like no way. Oh, that program is Photoshop insanely is complicated. Yeah, it was like Photoshop had taken like 20 years to master. And I was like, uh, Maya is going to take uh, 30, you know, mm -hmm. plus um, something about it was like it started to get away from like the arts and craftsy kind of thing, the working with my hands, the tactile sensation that I was looking to uh, achieve. But I was more thinking like I could get a career in this thing. While I was there, I ended up switching to 2D animation. And then they forced you in 2D animation to go over and study with like the illustration side of it again. So Warren Chang uh, was one of my instructors there and um, for heads and hands. And when I met Warren, he basically was like, he kind of picked my brain and was like, hey, it looks like you're interested in painting and all this stuff. 
He's like, if you ever go back to New York, you should look up Max Ginsburg and Jacob Collins and, you know, Bert Silverman, all these like giants of the uh, realist painting world that have been around forever. And, um, and that was kind of like the, the turning point. He was almost like the, uh, the gatekeeper for the, for the, like, that was the path I wanted to go in, but I just was kind of trying to figure everything out. You know what I mean? Is it that you didn't so, know that that was an option until then, or he just he he just sparked a certain motivation in you, or both? Yeah, yeah. I think a little bit of everything is kind of like nobody at the age of I think twenty one, twenty two really knows what they want to do, you know. And I was kind of like, let me explore all of these things before I really commit to something. The other aspect was in my training as an illustrator, I wanted to be a painter, but everything was abstract at the time. So they pu they pushed you into to illustration, right? That was like, if you want to learn how to do something realistic, go there. In illustration, it, it still had remnants of like some expressionism kind of feel to it, which is a good thing, but also a bad thing, because if you can't play the instrument, you can't express yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So I had never learned how to kind of master the instrument but i i knew kind of like the direction i would want to go with my work but i was trying to figure out how it could all fit together when warren came into the picture he reminded me just how much i wanted to be a painter and um he kind of set me on that path to be like why don't you go look here for a little bit you know and like at go meet this person and see what they have to say so a lot of it was kind of like exploration to see really what it is I wanted to do, but try something out before I, I say no to it, you know? Right. Do you think he saw potential in you or interest? Yeah. You know, him and I both bonded over like Norman Rockwell. I just remember we'd sit there and kind of talk to him all the time. And I was like, he would bring in books. I think he brought in Rockwell on Rockwell. And I was like, I've never seen a book like this, which was kind of like how Rockwell, it was called how I make a picture. Uh, and things like that, they were just like, I, I think he probably saw me light up when, when this information was kind of put in front of me, because the, the, I just remember going to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, uh, because mass art was right next to it and looking at a Jerome painting and being like, I don't know how to get to that. You know, mm -hmm. like that, that I'm being taught over here has nothing to do with this. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and the Rockwell thing kind of like made sense to me because it was more of like, well, this seems linear to like be able to get to where I wanted to be. Uh, but it took a lot of kind of this uh, going around the country to kind of get where I wanted to be. Yeah. So how did you learn how to do it? Well, I ended up, um, I ended up also in the Illustration Academy that summer. So I studied with like Mark English, uh, Gary Kelly, uh, Chris Payne, a lot of like top illustrators. And again, it was kind of like that was the door closing on the illustration side of it to say, like, maybe you don't want to do this thing. But I gave it a shot, one last shot. And um, basically, I flew to Florida and then did this um, this like two month thing there in Sarasota. And then after that, I was not going to go back to San Francisco. I was subletting my apartment at the time. But I figured I'd go home and see my parents for like two months. And that gets boring really quick. Mm -hmm. So um, I kind of. I'm like one of those guys that writes everything down. And I had all these notes from um, the discussions with Warren. And I was like, well, let me, let me 
first of all, I went into just to New York because I was in Massachusetts again. And I was like, this is extremely boring with my parents because they don't, you know, they're not into art at all. Mm-hmm. And I was like, let me go down to New York and go visit Polo and see my old boss and say hi to the kind of community. And um, when I went in that day, they said, can you work? And I was like, well, I mean, I could. And, you know, I didn't have a lot of money. So I was like, it would be nice if I could go back with a little bit of uh, money in the in the bank. And I ended up um, agreeing to go from September all the way to the end of the year and do a four month block at uh, Ralph Lauren as a freelancer. And in that time, I kind of like looked at my notebook and I was like, I'm here. Might as well call up Max. Might as well call up Jacob. Might as well call up all these people and um, and see just see what they have to say and see their work. You know, I didn't know who Jacob Collins was at the time. I kind of heard of Max from the illustration side of it because he's kind of a crossover. But I didn't know, Bert Silverman I knew because he's also tied to the size of illustrators in New York. But um, it just gave me the opportunity to kind of dig into things that were already kind of there when I was there, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming you did reach out to them and did get to speak to those three artists. Yeah, I actually emailed, I think, everybody on the list. Um, I think I emailed Jacob. I emailed um, Max. Basically, hold on, I'm trying to think of the right order of the discussion. I think I met with Max first because he had a direct tie to Warren. Warren studied under Max. Mm -hmm. And then it was basically like I started to take a class at the Art Students League of New York just just to draw. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Michael Grimaldi was one of the teachers. And then what happened was um, at the end of that block of time, I had to go back to San Francisco to get my stuff because I decided grad school was just not for me. I was going to come and get all my stuff and move back to New York and freelance again and in the fashion world. And um, I, a buddy of mine and I did this big pilgrimage around the United States where we saw a lot of artists, a lot of just artists in all kind of diff- different professions. So we saw Thomas Flew Hardy. I don't know if you know Thomas Flew Hardy at all. Uh-huh. Caricature artist. He's amazing. He mm-hmm. does like um like a grisaille, but he does more of like a Flemish style. So we basically emailed like I think it was like 10 or 15 artists and said, "Can we come see you in your studio?" And about I think 10 of them said yes to it. So we saw like Mark English, uh Gary Kelly, Thomas Flew Hardy, we stopped at Sid Mead's studio. Do you know Sid Mead? Know the name. I can't think of the he word. He did all the for like Tron and uh, Alien, I think, back in the okay. day. So we saw like all these artists that were just really good in their profession. We saw Eric Timmons. He did a lot of the concept work for like Star Wars. So we kind of like went around the country and saw like just a handful of artists. And again, you know, Flew Hardy was another guy that we saw in Minnesota. And he said, Look up these names of artists, Jacob Collins, Max Ginsburg, Bert Silverman. It was almost like like you could hear, like, if I could study as a painter, these are the guys that I would study with or girls. You know, like, here's just a group of great artists. And um, when I finally got back to New York, that's when I, I think I emailed the rest of them. It was January. And then Jacob was on that list. And I said, hey, I'm interested in studying. I know Warren. And he emailed me right back and he said, come in for an interview. And um, it was just funny because like that door, it's almost like, almost like the cantina scene in Star Wars where you're like the door opens to another world and you're like, this is what I've been looking for for a long time. 
And in that atelier, walking by 12 other individuals that were all um, like masters, you know, you walk in and I was like, if I could be the worst one in here, I'd be happy. Like that would get me like exactly where I wanted to be, if, even though I want to go further. But but this would be a great group to study with. And like Josh LaRock was in there, uh, Will St. John, Colleen Barry ended up joining. Uh, but So it was like a, a group of kind of like all-stars now. And um Oh, they, they were there the as back. students, you mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and I just remember just being like, wow, these, these people are all fantastic at what they're doing. And so Jacob took me in the back and he basically just said, you know, let me see your stuff. And I had all this like animation portfolio and illustration. I was kind of all over the place. And um, he was just not impressed. Oh, no. He was like, <laughs> Yeah, because you know they're they're a little bit more academic and 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 looking at like precision and um, anatomy and things like that. And in, in animation, it's more about um, expression and emotion and things like that. So he ended up sending me on this uh, long journey where he said, "Well, why don't you do a cast drawing?" And I said, um, "What the hell is a cast drawing? Uh, I don't know what that is." And he said, um, "It's one of these plaster cast antiques, and if you can draw that, bring it back to me." We said you can either study with Cammy Davis at the time she's now Cammy Salas, mm -hmm. or Nicholas Hill, two of my ex students at the Grand Central, and um, I, I basically went and I registered that night, and I thought I'll come back in like a week with a drawing and show it to him, right? Mm -hmm. But the difference was, you know, I I remember getting in there and I said, you know, how long does it take you guys to do a cast drawing? And they said uh, three months. I was like, three months? What are you guys doing? Yeah. Wow, I didn't know so, that. Yeah, so I, I had to learn how to really slow down. But, you know, it was kind of like leaving your ego at the door because, you know, you go in there and, and this person who, you know, you're hoping will be like, hey, you got some skills, you know, you're good, was like not impressed at all, mm -hmm. you know? And it was kind of like, all right, well, I need to see what he's seeing because I think he's honest and genuine. I don't think he's... I think he's just sending me in a wild goose chase. And I ended up going back like three months later with the drawing and he still, he was not really impressed still. Uh, he also said I was old, <laughs> which I wasn't that old. I think I was like 28 or 27. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then, and then he basically after like walking around and being like pouting and stuff and be like, oh, I don't know. He was like, all right, show up on Monday with a pencil. I think he said, like, you're not getting younger or something. And um, that was the beginning of it. Yeah. Very much like Karate Kid, uh, Mr. Miyagi, or like Meatloaf at the on Fight Club, you know, where he, they all have to stand outside the door for like a week. That right. amazing part. <laughs> so how many years were you there? I was there, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of money. So it was always like I could work. Um, I needed to work while I was there. So I ended up as a waiter again in the West Village, uh, working nights till like 2 a.m. And then I get back at the studio at like 8 a.m. But the studio was from 8.30 to um, 5 o'clock every single day, Monday through Friday. So it got old really quick. And um, Polo, Polo's kind of been like, they've always been like, hey, do you want to make some money? And I've always, you know, been like, okay. So I took a break after one year. And then um, went back to Polo for a year, and then I did, I did uh, nights there during that year, and then I came back and did almost like one more full year, 
but I also study with Max Ginsburg. So there's like this kind of direct and indirect approach. And I was trying to say like, there's beauty on both sides of it. Maybe I, I could be somewhere in the middle between these two. Um, because hmm. I, you know, they don't, they don't always overlap. And I think most people, when they look at the realist world, they, they think that we're all doing the same thing, but yeah, no. you know, you get different artists together and they're 10 different styles. Yeah. So that, okay. So that brings up an interesting thought or question that I have is how did you arrive on your, you know, quote unquote style and way of painting? I think it's a great question. I, I still don't think it's, it's, it's over. I still think it's being developed. Um, I think all of us are, you know, the, the thing with it was that when I studied with Jacob, he said, don't study with Max. Uh, and he said it because he was like, the ones that have done it in the past that tried to do two different ways of working, it kind of got in their way of uh, progress because they don't, they don't always overlap, you know? So he was kind of like, learn this methodology. And if you want to maybe later, you could kind of layer it in. And, and I think he's right, but, but I didn't listen to him and I did both of them. <laughs> but you still think he's uh, right. So do you regret studying with both? No, not at all. I think he's right, but I also think he's wrong. I think everyone is right or wrong. I think it depends on the student. Um, okay. I think. So you think his opinion's you know, valid. It's just not necessarily cut and dry. Yeah, I think so. I do think that, um, you know, one of the things that had happened at the time was they had, um, Grand Central was Jacob Collins, Kate Lehman, um, I think it was Michael Grimaldi and Dan Thompson. And one of the reasons why that couldn't work was because there were four different ideas on how mm -hmm. to approach a painting. Yeah. And I think what he was saying was, look, this, this is even like four people that come from like almost the same ideology and they can't exist. If we had one pedagogy that kind of moved forward, it would, it would actually help. Um, but I just was like, part of me was like, I want to be able to draw paint fast, which is what Max can do. He works out a prima you know, direct. And then Jacob was like, how to do it slow. And I thought these are, these are good things to be able to kind of have in your repertoire. So I don't always have to have like, you know, a thousand dollars to paint a model. Mm -hmm. So I did both of them uh, at the same time. Okay. So again, I don't, I'm not sure I might've kind of steered you away from my original question. How did you come to where you are now? Because to be honest with you, I purposely didn't read your CV, so I because I want to learn about you here, right? And um, yeah. I didn't. I never would have guessed you studied at Grand Central. It, it usually you can pick them out really easily, right? But I didn't see that in you. So how? I'm really curious how you came to where you are right now. Well, I, I take that as a compliment. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm not a fan of is that. And I think it's one of the reasons why I kind of got out of it was that I don't want to be, I don't want to be a cookie cutter version of somebody. I think that, um, you know, it's, it's sometimes too easy to get caught up in the ethos of the school and then you don't leave it. And then you become a version of a, of another person that's there. Uh, that's not directed towards anyone. That was more of like coming into art and saying that, you know, I want to make sure that, um, my ideas are what I express at the end, you know, cause a lot of the time they, they almost shape your thinking, you know, in a good way, in a bad way, I think it's a blessing and a curse. So, you know, I feel that 
the illustration background, the animation background, uh, with Max Ginsburg and, you know, the Water Street kind of methodology combined into one really is what helped me not to get, get too close to one of them, you know, find out who I was in the middle of all these things. And I, I still feel the same way in which, you know, it's almost like saying like, uh, what kind of music do you like? You know, I like all music and it's like, if I were to make it, I would want to pull in something like the Beatles with the Gypsy Kings, with maybe a little bit of like a hip hop influence or something. So it's not so clear that like you love this or your lineage of it. It's more of like a whisper, you know? Hmm. I like that. So what currently, what does inspire you in your work? What motivates you to paint every day? I just say everything. I mean, you know, it's almost like everywhere I've gone, I've listened to them. Every school always said that what they're doing is the right thing, right? So they always had like a dogma in that sense. And I think that they're correct, but they're also incorrect at the same time. Because if you get steered in that, you could start to think like that. So it it's almost like I feel like I'm like the Joseph Campbell of it, like pulling in all this Rosetta Stone of all of them and saying, well, I like animation because I was, you know, I was in it for a year. So there are beautiful things about film that I bring into it. I love Norma Rockwell, kind of the illustration side of it. The narrative side is what I love. And the Jerome painting that I saw at the MFA that time was uh, Laminance Gris, which was very much like a theatrical. It's like all these, all these people in costume bowing down to the great cardinal because he was the one behind uh, the actual cardinal. He's the, he was the gray eminence, right? He's the one that did all the work. Mm -hmm. um, so it's almost like, you know, if I go too far towards one thing, almost like my musical tastes, I will take a break from it and go do another thing. So I let all these fun things kind of influence and come together. Um, so everything, I mean, I'm the guy that like, when, when I go to a theater performance, I bring a notepad and a pen and I write everything down because I'm inspired and I'm in the moment, you know? Hmm. You know, where I go, I'm always looking, you know? Yeah. You know, one of the things that drew me to you was, and I don't remember when the first time I saw this, but there was a, like a little video clip or something where you were describing um, some technical principle in painting or drawing. I believe it was painting. And I thought, this guy has a rare gift on how to describe why things work the way they work. Because there's many people out there who've learned certain principles and they can regurgitate what they've learned and they can say, in this situation, do this. But I've met very few people that can really describe the science behind it, why it works. Mm -hmm. And so that led me to buy your book, which is, remind me the title now, my memory is awful, your, your painting book that you signed for me. The art is still life. Yes, the art is still life. My memory is terrible, but it's incredible. And there's like the the information in there is so thorough. Um, yeah. Anyway, it the question I have is 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 that the way you learn things? Is that the way you is that the way you sort of absorb information by trying to figure out how it works? Or is this just a, a teaching method you picked up somewhere else? 
I think it's, yeah, I think it's, it's a good, I was always the one that would ask my dad why like 12 times, you know, like, but why? And then you're in like the 12th why. And he's like, just because <laughs> at the end, you know, mm-hmm. um, I have a, I have a child now, uh, three and a half year old. And I, I, I hear this same thing, you know, like, but why? Um, but you know, I think it has to do with, um, you know, there was a lot of things that I, I learned in art school that were just kind of like dogmatic as well, which I'm sure you, you've heard them too. Um, I'm not quite sure. I, I know what your background is, but did you study illustration too or no? Um, uh, I'm, I have a similar story to yours where my, my education is a modge podge of a lot of different schools. I never did the atelier thing. It's just a lot of public schools. Yeah. Yeah. So like a lot of what we hear is kind of these echoes from, um, from past, right? It's either an echo from like a teacher that just says the sentiment. And a lot of the times when I would hear things, I didn't know why I would hear them. And I had to kind of like dig in. So, so one of them was like, don't have black on your palette, right? Don't, don't have black mixed black all the time or warm light, cool shadow all the time. Now, I think that uh, they were echoes. They actually come from ideas. And for me, it was like knowing when to do that thing. I think there's a pro and con to using them and, and then not using them, right? So mm-hmm. John Singer Sargent, as we know, always had black in his palette. Um, Cecilia Boo had black on her palette as well. And Manet had black on his palette. There's a lot of artists through the history of uh, painting that had it. Uh, Van Dyck, of course, had it as well. But then there's like the impressionists that didn't have it on their palette. So when I was able to kind of peel back the layers and get the answer to the why, it became less of a do this um, to avoid this, more of like a lighthouse. So I'm telling people to avoid avoid the rocks rather than just saying, don't do this thing and I don't know why, you know what I mean? Or like, this is what I've been told and I'm regurgitating it, like you said. So along the way, I studied with people that were like in the lineage of Ted Seth Jacobs and Mm -hmm. Ted Seth Jacobs was all about the orientation of light in relation to a form. So kind of taking physics and sciences, really an extension of the French academic tradition in which they were taking the optical and the conceptual and, and, um, putting the two together so that you can make almost like a prediction model. So if I understood uh, the direction of the plane of the angle of the jaw or the underside of like the chin, then I know that this is receiving less light than something up in the light, uh, like over here. So I could probably make a, a prediction model to say that it's higher chroma, the closer it is to the light source. And then down here, it's receiving less light because it's turning away from the light, right? Mm-hmm. So. So these kind of prediction models are, are I think, back to like the French academic tradition, but then we hear a lot of the echoes from the impressionist side as well, which is the the reason why we'll hear like, don't use black. And to me, you can actually, um, you can trace it almost back to a quote. I think it's either by Cezanne, not Cezanne, it's um, I think Renoir. And he said, um, we forgot our tube of black and uh, impressionism was born like quotes like that. And the reason why is when you go outside and uh, you know, you've got during the day and, and you're overly stimulated. Uh, we don't quite see a lot of black, right? You could actually achieve black because 
black has more to do with like the value of being able to achieve that than it does of it's actually a color most blacks are a version of a color you can actually use a spectrophotometer to kind of measure it if you wanted to but we can achieve almost the same thing which is why we see like ultramarine blue mixed with like burnt sienna uh cancel each other out on either sides of um the color wheel and then we get black right and that's actually a common thing like my client does it all the time and it's he makes the most gorgeous like neutrals so it's it, it was almost to me of like to get a deep sense of teaching it i needed to get a sense of the why so i could always have a a structure to kind of stand on of like this comes from an ideology and this comes from the impressionism or like the french academic tradition and um it depends on what your artwork is kind of looking for which i also found was similar to the way in which max was more of like an optical painter because he came down through like the hawthorne tradition mm -hmm. hawthorne henshi and then jacob was he was the student of ted seth jacobs and if you look back they kind of like family tree back to the same people which is like jerome which to me was the 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 almost like miracle that like I arrived at Jake's studio that day and I was like this is the French academic tradition that I was like this is the Jerome painting that was staring at me at the museum it was kind of crazy hmm starting on a long run no no that's good stuff yeah I I want to learn more about that so I mean are there certain principles that you discovered along the way that until you were able to peel back those layers as you put it you weren't entirely sure why or how to implement it into your work and then were there were there moments where you made these discoveries and it changed the way you paint and how you paint yeah you know i think a lot of this stuff if you can get a vast knowledge of it like it's almost like they're just tools in a toolbox and mm -hmm. you can kind of grab each one uh, when you need it. So for instance, when it comes to color mixing, which is like one of the most, uh, one of the biggest topics for, for a teacher, I'm sure you get this a lot cause you're running the atelier is like, how do I, uh, how do I neutralize something? How do I lower the chroma? Now, if you, if we went across the wheel, uh, like let's say we grabbed a red and a green on a traditional color wheel, then we would get a semi-neutral, but it's almost never neutral, right? So it's almost like the theory kind of works, but it kind of doesn't in a sense. You will lower the chroma, but you're not going to get uh, neutral, which is really the theoretical center of a wheel. But if you used a different model, something like Munsell, you could actually start with neutral and mix to neutral, and you would actually get a more predictable uh, color. And a lot of the time what's happening is that when we're teaching these things, students can't quite see it where you go like, we're right, we're trying to get neutral, but they don't see neutral, they see brown. And then, you know, so it's like the, it doesn't particularly help them. So it's almost like, I look at them as different tools. Like if you want a prediction model that would be um, much more predictable, mixing to neutral is good. However, a painter loves serendipitous moments where you're just kind of like, I, I can't quite get this to be perfectly neutral, but something happened on the canvas that I wouldn't have predicted. Uh, and and that's, that's also beautiful as well. So I think it's like, that's why I say like the direct and the indirect are both good ways in terms of like large ideas, just like color mixing could be 
complementary muting, or you could, you know, it's almost like always two ways to tackle the same idea. And when you want to hit it, maybe you want to hit the the neutral way. But if you want to be playful, I would say that's more of like a, a deep, strong understanding of painting that you should move and arrive to later in that sense, if that makes sense. It does. I don't want to like, yeah. As you know, it's like the, the students, when they come in, they're trying to kind of, they're trying to control the medium. And it's hard to do when you say like, look, red and blue make green, and then it doesn't make green most of the time, right? Or like across the wheel, um, blue and orange, and that doesn't always mix to a neutral as well. And the same with violet and uh, and yellow, right? Mm -hmm. so, so it's almost like you could give them tools that are like, here's a tool that would solve the problem and you can get prediction. But then when you don't want prediction, you can be playful with your color. And I think, again, almost like when we were saying at the beginning, like when we get into when we get into like looking at artists, uh, we think that we're all solving problems the same way and everyone draws the same way and everyone paints the same way. But there's like totally all different styles across the board. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. So I know you teach a lot. Well, maybe not a lot. Maybe you can tell us about how you do teach and but I, I know you do because you just came from a workshop um, in the Northwest, right? Yeah, is it's that... almost a nightmare. Oh, was it? Why the, is that? Uh, the workshop was amazing, but getting there, the, oh. the, uh, there's a pilot shortage, so they just canceled my flight. And I was like, well, I got to be there at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. And uh, it ended up like I had to fly to LA and then sleep in the, in the airport, not in the airport, but like the hotel and then fly out in the morning. Just a oh, what a mess! Chase. So, how do you teach other than workshops? Do you teach in any other way? Yeah, I do workshops. I do online teaching. Um, you know, once the pandemic hit, Zoom became like almost like the perfect place because everybody came became accessible. And I think the people that wouldn't have done Zoom ended up kind of giving it a shot. You know, mm -hmm. like hey, I can access uh, Jeff Hine. He's in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, the only way I could have accessed them before is to either do a workshop or move out there. Right. Right. So, so that's, that's really opened up like another level of like teaching, um, with its own art form as well, where zoom is an incredible place where it feels, you know, we're able to kind of even do something like this. Um, so I do a little bit of everything I teach locally. I think I'll be teaching at the Lyme Academy in, in Connecticut. Um, but also I do a, a bunch of workshops as well. I'll be doing the Art Students League next month. Whidbey Island was fun. Um, and then a couple more, but I try not to do too many. Yeah, I know you're a family guy too. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I gotta keep my wife and my family in mind all the time and make sure that as much as I enjoy doing this stuff, it doesn't put too much of a stress or strain on, on our relationship. Yeah, yeah. I used to do six, or no, not six, four a year, every quarter. And then I did that for probably 10 years and then I just got burned out. So I don't do workshops much anymore. Um, yeah. But I'm like you, I really enjoyed them for a long time and I still enjoy them on occasion, just not, not for a year anymore. But um, my family's yeah. a lot older than yours. So <laughs> it's a little different, a little different. My kids are starting to move out, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's fun times. Um, so 
so what is your day to day like? I know I kind of asked you this question, but I, I'm, I mean, literally, like, what do you do from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed on a daily basis? Yeah, you know, a lot of what's happened is um, since the pandemic, I've become more teacher. And I think with the book, it kind of pivoted me into teacher role where I did it before, but it was probably like 25% of my time. And I'd say it's more of like 50, 60 now. Mm -hmm. But I try to, I try to kind of like make sure that everything starts with painting. And I keep like, I don't ever not want to paint. I don't want to teach full time, uh, even though the demands of teaching. And once you get a lot of people that feel like you're helping them, they want more and I want to help them. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like the top of the chain for me is like painting and everything comes out of it. Right. Uh, and without that, I'd be pulling out the the foundation from it. So I paint as much as I can. Um, I watch my daughter about two to three days a week solely where my wife uh, works in the office. Uh, but and then on the other days, I do fun stuff like interviews with like <laughs> you. Um catching up on teaching, like I just finished all my online critiquing. I also teach at the Academy of Art University online and sometimes in a college. Um, as much as I may sound cynical about the the college experience, I um I don't want to just be cynical. I wanna um I wanna do something. So I, I usually go back to try to help kids and be like, you know, there is another another whole kind of world out there in Atelier system. I'm not directly pulling them over. I'm just saying, like, you know, I'm bringing my principles there, and then um, they just see it. So right, giving that, them that option at least. Yeah, just see that, like, like those dogmatic things that you hear, and I still hear them, like warm, like cool shadow. There's nothing wrong with them if you can find out the why of why you would do that, but it's not always there, like. Warm like cool shadow is a, a great concept for making a painting, but if you don't see it, and this is the problem that that I was having with it was like, if I'm there and I don't see it, and you tell me it's there, I just go, I need Jeff to to kind of like he has to be my Rosetta Stone. Mm -hmm. But if you teach it as like this is more of a concept, and and instead it's it's more of an interesting thing to make a picture with a warm like cool shadow. That's a different thing, you know. Because yeah. the other one is like they. They, they don't get it. They don't see it. And then all of a sudden they just need you to be like, can you fix my drawing? Can you fix my painting all the time? So my hope is to get them to see and know the, the rationale to then go out and then make their own decisions after. Yeah, it's interesting you brought that one up several times because that's been, as a teacher, has been one of my pet peeve principles. <laughs> because- um, I know, right? Yeah, because you know I, I did an experiment once to to, make a point to my students and I photographed and I, I, I fixed the white balance, fixed the aperture, fixed the shutter speed, everything's fixed. And you know, with a camera, when it's fixed, it's fixed. It's not going to change what it sees. Right. So mm -hmm. then I photographed a person in a big room with very little reflected light, wide open room, shined a, shined a warm light on them and photographed them. Then I did it again with a cool light and photographed them. Then I took it into Photoshop and I, I dropped the shadow on both those pictures and they were the same color. Yeah. And I was making the point that they're the color. They're just a darker version of the local tone of the skin, of the local color of the skin exactly. plus ambient light from the room around them. 
so that the, this rule is more related to how we might paint to create an interesting picture and generally doesn't relate to reality. Um, right. And that's the thing is to find out why, why you would have that scenario. Because if somebody just always says warm light, cool shadow, and I think part of the problem is that we, we have a lot of um, mediocre teachers that are just uh, echoing who they study with right. without understanding the why. And then it's like somebody like me or you is like we can kind of explain or, or show the experiment. And then all of a sudden students go like, oh, I get it. Like now it's not as complex as like I see red on my shirt and I can't go from red. I have to go from red to green to go into the shadow. And it's like, you know, <laughs> that just never made sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's like I said, that's why I've always been fascinated with your teaching is like I, I felt uh, kinship to the to your approach. And because personally, I learn by understanding I if you like I couldn't remember the title of your book. Right. That's typical with my my brain. And I noticed going through school that unless I understood it, I wouldn't retain it um, because I can't just retain empty facts, but I can retain principles and concepts. So I'd always challenge my teachers. Why is that that way? And if they couldn't answer it, the only way I could retain it is to figure it out myself. So, right. yeah, so that's how I, how I teach. So I think it, there's something there too. And that's what I, I think I'm trying to say with like, there, there's a lot of people that teach, but they don't know. And I think the ones that can tell you why or when to use it are just much more useful. Like it does happen, um, warm light, cool shadow. Oh, of course. Especially, yeah, if we go outside and a lot of, I think of these concepts for this came from the impressionists, but the impressionists were almost purely uh, landscape painters. Right. sunsets like this. And it's like, you're gonna see warm light, cool shadow, uh, especially because there's a, um, effect from the atmosphere in which it's going to, um, cool everything down, you know? Right. So it's like warm plus, sun, blue yeah. sky. <laughs> right. And also the after effect image in yeah. which your cones are exhausted. And then if you blink, you see the, the complement of it. So you may see a little bit of cyan and a red if you blink, but, but in a vacuum in a studio, when we're showing these concepts, it's like, you know, if I ask somebody, do you see, um, that's the other part of it too. It's like, it depends on which, which complementary colors we're talking about because some are based off of perception. Some are based off of uh, the traditional color wheel and some are based off of, you know, light. So it, it's like, you know, the, the, the artists are, are more interested in color mixing, but it doesn't translate over into um, color space models. You know, it's like cyan is that is the, opposite of red if you were to do that kind of um experiment but on a traditional color wheel it's green yeah i know it gets confusing when you start talking about light <laughs> exactly yeah 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 well let's look at your art a little bit and i mean which is just absolutely gorgeous by the way i absolutely love your work and maybe we could talk about some of these principles even as we're looking at at your work you see yeah it, once we're done looking at the video you could scroll down i think there's a you know coming soon workshop but you could see some of those models of um yeah the three different color wheels in which you could use any of them for painting 
So the one on the left is what's called the traditional color wheel, sometimes referred to as the painter's wheel. Mm -hmm. um, the middle one is the additive and subtractive wheel because we see color in both an additive and a subtractive way. Uh, light is additive, and when it hits a surface, it's subtractive. And what you could do is you could basically take red, green, and blue, uh, which is the um, the primaries for additive, and then almost like CMYK, CYK without the M, Mm -hmm. And then take those and oppose them into a triangle and say you could do an average of additive and subtractive, uh, which some some people are using. That's almost like if you were to merge somewhere between a uh, computer space model and and not not computer um, space model, like a color space model on a computer and then paints. And then the Munsell wheel is another system in which artists like because it's it's a decimal system based uh, system in which you could actually make predictions because it's it's divisible by ten. You can actually predict what's going to happen between, you know, mathematically uh, between red and yellow. What would happen if you were to kind of take um, hue value and chrome and kind of mix them? Yeah, that's right. You know, looking at this chart, this is the thing that I saw the first time that where I realized what kind of a teacher you are, where you bent a piece of foam core that you had painted all one color green, or I think it was green. And yeah. you, you were talking, yeah, and you were showing how light moves across the form, but, but it may have been this video or another one similar where you talked about the specular highlight and you were describing how that changes relative to your position. Yeah, you've got it right there. Yeah, so really just to what happens with light is that you could kind of bend it and then you'd see that uh, closer to the light source, uh, higher chroma, and then as it falls away, it gets darker. So there, there's small you know, models like that that could help us kind of wrap our head around what's happening. Instead of seeing like, we see all these transitions, but instead if you thought of it like a facet or plane, almost like a disco ball, Mm -hmm. You kind of break the information down into like into like, oh, I see, I see the changing now of the value. So you obviously have a very scientific, maybe that's not the right word, but you have what seems like a scientific or at least analytical understanding of these principles. Um, how much do you apply these in an analytical way and how much of it has become intuitive when you're actually painting? I think yeah, I think I think art has to be both of them. I actually, um, you know, some of the quotes. I just wrote a book on color called the Oil Co Painters Color Handbook, which comes out in a couple months. And and my whole point in the book is I don't want to just give you like I don't want to give you instruments and tools and make it scientific. Painting has to be somewhere between the head and the heart, right? Mm -hmm. So it has to be intuitive. It has to be um, scientific. And Leonardo actually said you need to put a little bit of science in your art and art in your science, right? So to make it interesting, it's almost like we're on the seesaw and we have to make sure that we don't go too far one way or another. I don't want to, I don't want to measure like a, an engineer, you know, I want to have the eye of an engineer to be able to kind of hit the accuracy of the color that I need to, if I need, if I need at the time. And one of the quotes in the book that I, I uh, try to hang it on is that, um, I think it was Michelangelo said that the caliper should be in the eyes, not in the hand. So the intuition of of how we paint is based off of our deep understanding. Some people, you know, can 
paint really well without understanding this, of course. And that's where I'd say like Max was kind of that side, more of like an optical painter. Yeah, but do you think he really doesn't understand it or do you think he maybe just understands it intuitively? I do think he, he understands it intuitively. And I think that a lot of people, especially that come into this from a second career, Mm -hmm. come at it from a lot of like an analytical side and i think that you you have to find the right kind of temperament for the person in which we can't just say you know paint from your heart all the time we also have to say like this is also what's happening with light when it hits a form and then all of a sudden something clicks so i think it's up to the the person to find out how which side of that um that seesaw they want to go on to, to kind of solve the problem. Yeah. You know, that analogy or an analogy that comes to mind or came to mind when you talked about that quote that Da Vinci had stated, um, is like, and being an artist with one or the other would almost be like being an architect without art or science. Mm -hmm. It's like, you might have all the art, but then your building won't stand. (laughs) Like it'll yeah. completely, it'll fall down at a, at a light breeze, or you might have all of right. the, you might have all the science, but then your building's ugly. Like, the same could be said with music too. Yeah. Just imagine if somebody said, what is a musical instrument? And they said, it's something that makes sound. And you said, okay, well, what if I throw a guitar down some stairs? That's a sound. We're like, no, but you need to know how to kind of tune the instrument. You need to play the scales and things like this. So. I think that's what was missing a lot through those college years, which is like nobody ever taught me how to how to tune the instrument, how to hold it. But they were like, go go towards the expressive side right away. And it's like, no, but you missed this fundamental step that, you know, if I want to play jazz music, I have to have a really deep understanding. But that's that's based off of intuition. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. Um, All right. Let's look at some of your art here. Yeah, these are unbelievable. All right, let's look at this one. I love this. This is beautiful. So we're looking at the Great Escape, which is 48 by 36 inches. So is there anything you can tell us about this painting? Yeah, you know, a lot of what influenced me for this, um, and and a lot of of these paintings are influenced by a a deeper meaning. So I try to, there was a great, um, there was a great, uh, article in the New York Times not too long ago, which was called a messy table, and it went into the kind of. Did you see it? Mm-mm. It had to do with uh, Dutch still life painting, and Dutch still life painting is all about symbols. Uh, so, like, we look at it in 2021, and we don't see the symbols; we just see a messy table, right? Mm-hmm. But for me, it's like I think that you know some of these symbols should do have a meaning. Obviously, when it comes to still life painting, meaning comes from like the individual because we can all react to something differently. So. I go I go towards like a, a narrative side of it. And The Great Escape has to do with a song by Guster, which is a, a indie rock band. And the idea behind it is that, you know, we can we can kind of get lost in these hopefully we can get lost in these art forms. Uh but what is it? Is it an escape from reality? You know, is that what writing is to us? Is that what cocktails are to us? But out of it, perhaps stories can come out of them as well. And that's kind of like what the boat is almost like, in a sense, coming out of the paper, you know? Hmm. So it's kind of like when the, when the stories are crafted, I keep them internal. I don't really want to tell people that because I think that's a almost like a form of priming where I, I enjoy when somebody brings their own meaning to the painting as well. So 
yeah. was kind of, you know, the, the optical, it's just the beauty of like seeing a model ship, uh, the Union Jack and the color. And then I do a bunch of studies to try to make sure that I can kind of complement it. And I actually had a bottle of Patron over there at first, but it didn't feel right. So I went more like analogous color scheme, you know, red, orange kind of mm -hmm. uh, so, so featured on the boat. Well, the thing about it, this painting and, and all of your work is that you don't need to know what it means because it holds its own as a composition. It's just so beautiful to look at without knowing what it means, but it also sort of teases you to want to know because there's, it does sort of suggest there's something else there. And I kind of was suspicious yeah. about that too, because of something you said earlier, where you were attracted to um, Norman Rockwell because of his narratives. And I thought, yeah. yeah, he's putting narratives in his work. I know he's putting narratives in his work. So I'm glad to hear that that is what you're doing. I mean, they would have been great either way, but it is interesting that, that you've, that's how that influence has carried over. So from a technical standpoint, I want to have a couple questions about it. Um, it's really the, the wood grain on the white wall. It feels mm -hmm. like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like that's thin paint and the underpainting showing through to create wood grain. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you're doing, that's why... you're doing the same thing on the box, right? And the table. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sometimes, and this is more of like a personal, um, opinion here, but like, I love to get in there and look at like a Fontaine Latour. Mm -hmm. And uh, I get yelled at at museums for being too close because I'm trying to figure out <laughs> yeah, what those layers are. Yeah. yeah. I actually tell my students, you should. Uh, tell me when you're doing, I'll give you a high five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you yeah. know, the complexity of the paint, you know, the optical mixing, the serendipitous moments that, like, you know, if you did a transparent red earth underpainting and then tried to cover it, it's almost like putting bushes in front of a red house. You can try to cover it, but there's still going to be some element of that that's kind of poking through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then when you get to the sale, yeah, I mean, you're using colors that are relatively transparent until you put white in them, but there's not a lot of white in these reds and blues and yet you still cover and it. So there's this nice contrast between the flatness of fabric, not flatness as in form, but the flatness of texture versus the yeah. texture of the background. It's yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, and I like to think of it like cooking. It's almost like um, if you had a piece of salmon and it was spicy, you'd probably have some white rice to kind of balance it, right? So there's yeah. a textural that's like, you know, cooks are all about textures. They're like, let me put some crushed up peanuts in your salad to give you a little bit more of a texture because the fish may be bland, right? So like mm -hmm. a white fish or something like that. So I think there's like, there's an art form in it all and variety is the spice of life. If I have textural component throughout the whole design, I, I want to try to contrast that with something that's a little bit, like you're saying, like you can kind of feel the the smoothness of the, the boat. Mm -hmm. So tell me, this one makes me want to know about your process, because if I were to set up a still life like this in my studio, it would seem somewhat overwhelming. Like I'd, I'd wonder where to start. So maybe with this one, you could tell me a little bit about how how you tackle a complex painting like this with lots of objects and lots of color. Yeah, this is a tough one. This was for a show called, um, it was a two-man show with David Palumbo. He's an illustrator. And uh, it was called Skin and Tonic, which the gallery put, put that name together. Hmm. 
So David does like these half nudes and I was doing these cocktail paintings and they said, would you like to do a two person show with David? I said, of course, uh, I love his work. He does a lot of like Marvel comics, which of course I grew up with that stuff. So I love to, I love to um, collaborate with people that I don't know and then we can get to know each other more. So my side of it was, you know, what's your show piece? What's the big one? And that's actually what you just pointed out too with the Union, uh, the Union Jack one, the, the Great Escape. That was, you know, I think of like, What's my stunner for the year? What's the big piece that I can get people to go like, wow, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what this one was. So this one is almost as big as that one. I think this is four feet by three feet. And I just knew that it's almost like it should have like an idea of, because it was a cocktail show, like maybe all of them together, almost like forming like Voltron or something. Um, so that's what this is. and. The idea for this was like, I don't want to just put random bottles together. I want to make it seem like it's perhaps somebody's bar scene, um, you know, at their house. And I think the book, uh, it actually says it on, I think it's called The Bartender's Guide by Jerry something. Thomas. And it was yeah, Thomas. Jerry Thomas. Thomas. Yeah. So I think it was considered the first ever cocktail uh, manual. And that's what the scene is about. It's kind of like an ode to that. And ode to like the modern, like mixology and taking in and uh, giving an ode to the the people that came first and now putting it all together as like perhaps this person's taking notes and they're mixing their own drinks. Hmm. So again, the narrative kind of fuels the idea where I start there. And then I think like, it's the Ralph Lauren in me. It's the like, if I were to, if I were to, if, if I were to make this painting authentic and be in it, you know, I can't make it look like it was too set up, you know, I'm not a big fan of those kind of still lights that look like that. Mm -hmm. And part of this actually, I think succeeded, but I still think that there should have been elements on the left and the right that kind of, kind of fell into the picture, something that wasn't so planned, mm. but that's kind of like where I start, like, you know, there's an action being, um, that happened, the Smirnoff bottle, the cap is not on the top. So it's actually the thing that's being sampled and the author is taking notes. So from a technical standpoint, let's talk, I'm, talk about that if you don't mind. Cause I mean, obviously mostly artists are gonna be listening to this. We're probably really curious about your approach. And from what I've seen, it appears like you do a pretty specific drawing early mm -hmm. on and then, and then start painting on top of that. Can you talk about that a little bit about that process? Yeah, so the way in which when I studied with Jacob, um, Jacob and Cami was that um, they would do a very, almost like a cartoon, you do a drawing for a painting and then you transfer it over almost like um, with a carbon, like a carbon transfer. Mm -hmm. So on something complex like this, it could get a little hard to just go for it. I know Kwang Ho does it and he does it beautifully. But um, again, almost like these two big major ways of thinking instead of going direct, I went indirect here and I transferred the drawing over and then I built it up in layers. So oh. I transferred it over, um, with, with, a with, I think it was like burnt umber on the back of a piece of paper mm -hmm. and then it keeps the cartoon. So then I don't have to be drawing the whole time. Now I think there's a pro and a con to it. I think sometimes it can get too mechanical and some people think it's too much like a roadmap or, you know, um, filling in, what is it called? Uh, like a coloring book. 
But I think that it's like these were old methods that used to be employed and now they just don't do it anymore. And every, now everybody gets kind of like the direct way, but there is an alternative way to do it if you wanted to. What I'm, As far as your approach, whether you paint like Kwang Ho or whether you paint like you, what matters mm -hmm. is the finished product, right? I agree. I, I think yeah. so. Um, yeah. And that's something that whoops. Max used to argue too when I was in his class. He would say funny stuff. And I love Max to death, but he would say... Big artists use big brushes. And, I, and I'd be in there and I'm 6'1", he's like 5'2". He'd have a huge brush and I would, I'd have a small one. But the thing is, I used to hide from him and then come back at the end and he'd be like, because if he caught me in the middle, he'd be telling me I'd be doing it wrong. And instead, he would see me at the end and be like, you did a great painting. So it was almost like the middle part where he had this training of like, you have to work this way that um, if he caught me in it, could have got me in trouble. <laughs> yeah. So I just, I used to avoid him. Okay, so that brings up another question I have for you. So you came from two very dogmatic perspectives then, because a statement mm -hmm. like that suggests that he was also dogmatic and opinionated about what makes an artist an artist. Um, and then obviously um, your other atelier was, uh, very dogmatic and had a very specific approach. So do you, when you teach, do you try and avoid that? Or do you have your own set of absolutes that you, that you share or project onto your students? In other words, you know, you clearly didn't want to paint with large brushes and you clearly don't paint with large brushes. So how did that experience kind of hiding from your teacher <laughs> affect yeah. how you approach your students? Well, it's more of like a funny thing, I think. Um, I, you know, plenty of times in Max's class, not I, I wasn't disrespectful to him. I, I never said no, you know, anything like that. It was more of like later on when it was kind of like the bird was ready to kind of jump out of the nest. It was like I still needed that time to kind of figure some things out. The way in which I approach it with my students is that I, I basically tell them like there's kind of two main approaches to painting and you find out between these two big ones, which one you want, like, you know, there, there are pros and cons to it. That's why I think everybody is correct and incorrect at the same time. Um, there's any, there's any other school out there that could contradict something that you learned at another school. Um, and that's why it's hard. I think that's what Jacob was trying to say of like, if you start with like, you know, massing in large shapes and then move to the, the smaller ones, which is which, how a lot of people work, that's good. But then uh, something like an indirect approach would be to basically take and do an abosh, a wash-in. So you're doing almost like a watercolory kind of look, which was is pretty much the same thing, but you're working in it in a very indirect way. So you're building up in slow stages rather mm -hmm. than covering everything. Um, so they, they both had ways in which they could avoid the problems that you would encounter on either side of it. So I try to like show them like, you know, I teach direct and indirect approaches to still life painting and say, um, between these two things, I think is, is the truth that you need to find as a teacher. What they're trying to do is saying, we're trying to avoid some traps, you know, and mm -hmm. and one fact is that if you use a small brush at the beginning, you're going to draw eyelashes and eyeballs and nostrils and things like that. But instead, you can see the picture quicker if you mass in the forms and you you get things like that. I think Quang Ho actually works the same way. 
Mm -hmm. or similarly, I wouldn't say the same, but you know, and I agree. I think there's like a million different ways to work. Um, so I, tr I try to keep them open-minded, you know, rather than like, yeah, ra rather than contract the way of thinking, I think the teacher's job is to keep them curious and know that to give them enough tools so that they can learn to solve their own problems. And sometimes that does come with having to say, big artists use big brushes. Yeah. You know? So it's interesting because you, you explained why you just explained why, um, big artists use big brushes because if they don't use big brushes, they might paint eyelashes and go into too much detail too early before they resolve the bigger forms and bigger shapes, um, and exactly. bigger issues. So it, again, that's why I, I admire your teaching approach is that, you know, instead of these big overarching statements, you explain, okay, avoid what could happen if you use a small brush, right? right. Um, a lighthouse. Yeah, what's that? That's why I always say it's it's like a lighthouse. It's like, watch out for the rocks. And this is, uh, you know, I'm not gonna tell you which way to navigate into port, but you know, there's rocks over here and there's rocks over here and you have to make your way in. Yeah, you know, I remember when I was, uh, I had been painting professionally for maybe a year or two and I feel like I was like very, I mean, I'm never comfortable completely with what I'm doing as you might understand that feeling. I don't know. I think a lot of artists I've talked to do, but I was in a clear direction that I needed to stay in and stay focused. Right. And, um, and then I picked up a book by a world renowned painter that I absolutely respect, just like I respect the others that you mentioned and studied with. So of course I wanted, I, when this book came out, I wanted to just soak it in and, uh, I read it cover to cover and then it screwed up my painting for months <laughs> because there was so much dogma in there and so many absolute statements in there. And it was, if yeah. you don't paint like this, you're not a painter statements. If you don't paint like that, you're not a good painter page after page after page. And because I respected this artist so much, I kept on questioning every decision I made. Like, would this artist do this thing? And if I, and yeah. if he would, then maybe I'm not a real painter, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't find those useful. I mean, I know the book you're talking about, by the way. Um, <laughs> How could you possibly know? <laughs> I know. Well, we'll talk after. Okay. Um, but you know, I don't find that, I don't find that useful. You know, it's like you're constraining them and, you know, a lot of what I teach is, is a very Joseph Campbell thing. It's like, use the rules, don't be used by the rules. If you're going to have a statement like that, that defines a painter or not, that's kind of like what I was saying to Max. The irony is that I'm six one with a tiny brush and you're uh, a small person with, you know, a smaller person with a, with a big brush. But if you judge it at the end of it as its own thing, nobody really cares. Uh, right. We care to a degree of how we approach there. I, I wouldn't advocate for like, tracing photos and stuff like that. No, oh, this is gorgeous as well. I'm going to flip through a few. And then if there's some that you are particularly interested in talking about, let me know. Yeah. I mean, they're all like, this one is a, a painting by, uh, it's called another story and the name of, um, the band who wrote a song called another story is called the head and the heart. So, you know, a lot of 
it's it's almost like the way in which I teach is almost like the end of that movie, the big a big fish by uh, Tim Tim Burton, mm-hmm. uh, where it's like all of the things that I say have a lot to do with the things that are um, come in and out of my life, and you know that that song has a a fiddle in it, which is you know pretty much the same thing as a violin. And this isn't like a literal approach to it. I was just obsessed with the song at the time. And instead of being literal, I just was like, you know, I was obsessed with it. I painted my version of what that would be. And I called it another story. So so some things are like clear and some things are not clear. And, you know, the other one with the bottles, um, I should have called that one. Um, What's the name of the Foster People song? Uh, all the other kids with the pumped up kicks, pumped up kicks. Because mm-hmm. when I was putting that together, it was kind of like this beautiful, um, sad moment. You know, the thing about that song is that here it is. Oh, which um, one? Back. Yeah, forward to that one. Yeah. Okay. So the thing about the thing about that song is that you, when you're in the song, what you don't realize is that. There's a, you're, it's so catchy. It's almost like a jingle because they were jingle writers and then they went and made some music after. But the song is about school shootings. So there was like a Ouch. somber. Yeah. Yeah. It was like this weird, like, you know, you're, you end up finding yourself singing to it. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute. You know, he's talking about like a, a gun, you better run and all that stuff. And I was like, can, can we capture some of the moods and be inspired by something like that and put it in your own work? So there's like a beautiful quiet, I think, to this in the same way that like the red is the jingle that pulls you into the, into the uh, very somber moment, you know, so it's not, it's not so much. I'm like, there's no gun or anything involved in this, but can you be inspired by the ideals that are put in a different kind of art form? You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. my, um, this one reminds me of how my students always just curse the ellipse because you've done some beautiful ellipses on this, by the way. <laughs> Yeah. My students teach- always curse the ellipse. They're like, oh, I'll never get ellipses right. It's, yeah. but you did it. Yeah, they're beautiful. Well, what we would do is we would, um, we used to think, do an exercise called tippy planes, and we would take a cast, and instead of looking at it straight on, you'd tip it back in space. So it was just all foreshortening. Mm-hmm. And then you force yourself. Like, foreshortening is, I think, the, as, as Neil deGrasse Tyson would say, it's like brain failures. We always take that ellipse and then we flip it up to a circle, right? Mm-hmm. But if you force yourself to like really deconstruct it and understand what's happening there, then we can uh, we can get really good in it. Mm-hmm. This ellipse actually uh, annoys me. Uh, I think I did a pretty good job, but it's okay. It's not yeah. the best. <laughs> I the frog in here is really cool. That's why I stopped. And this and this is the telescope or microscope is incredibly painted it's so intricate this one what you know early on when i was just starting to do still lives i was working with travis schlott and i would go to a studio and i remember uh showing travis and i said hey can i show you a painting i'm working on see what you think and i remember i was working on this at the same time there was like two paintings and i flipped through it he said wait wait, wait, wait. go back to the other one because the other the other stuff was just kind of like a, a typical still life that you'd see and he said, this is, this is very interesting. What is it? And I, I thought like, that's interesting. Cause this is almost like what I'm interested in, but I'm afraid to show people, mm-hmm. but it kind of opened that door to be like, why don't you be you? Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of people out there that are painting a lot of the same stuff. And, you know, if we got into your personal, uh, interest, then 
then that's where it's like it could flourish, you know? Yeah. Do you paint more stuff like that? When you say you're interested in this, do you mean more science related subject matter? Yeah. You know, this was from the evolution store in New York city. I went into, um, they always have like skulls and stuff like that. And I always thought that was cool. And, um, they had a, a frog in a jar. So I ended up buying it. And then I kind of built this, this around it. This is called Rana Escalanta, Escalanta, which is edible frog. Mm. But, um, but it was really just kind of like, you know, if I had one prop and I loved it, I could let it sit in my studio and kind of build a story around it. But take your time with it. Like, let the story build itself. Don't force it, you know. But I do like all this kind of weird scientific tinkering kind of idea. So, oh, I really like this one, too. This is really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, that was... Uh, so this was a commission, and you know how commissions are sometimes. Mm -hmm. They're, they can be quite boring. <laughs> so this was um, somebody saying that, you know, my husband, his favorite drink is a kamikaze. And I was like, so do you want just a kamikaze painting? And they were like, well, whatever, you, what do you want to do? Come up with an idea. And I was like, really? Just any idea? And they said, yeah, make it like 18 by 24. And I was like, well, I'm not going to make a giant cocktail painting. That'd be kind of strange. So I, I kind of thought like, well, I, I sometimes I'll do word lists. And I was like, well, what can I do with kamikaze that would be interesting? And I was like, well, there's also the plane, you know? So I thought like mm. perhaps the birth of the kamikaze could be like, you know, maybe the drink came out of it. It's not, of course, accurate, but the props were, were pretty accurate in which, you know, I worked as a graphic designer. So I, I designed the blueprint in the background based off of some models I found online. Oh, wow. And then, Printed it out and then put it up there, but yeah, oh, no I way. Mean, that's the extra mile right there. Yeah, and for me, that's that's the fun part of mm -hmm. like the research side of it. Like, you know, it's the it's the Ralph Lauren. If if somebody came in and they knew something really well, um, I want to impress them. You know, like I don't want them to come and be like, "That's not an official World War II, you know, kamikaze helmet." It's like, no, I got that too. So. Okay, that brings up something else I'd like to know is, do you have just a huge collection of things in your studio? There's a lot of stuff around here. I don't think my wife likes it. Um, but so I, is you it know, I, throughout your house and stuff? Um, she's like a minimalist. So a lot of all the props are just up here. And as a teacher, I've got all these like models and stuff from, um, you know, I've got a Munsell tree over there. Can we have Ooh, a little tour? Yeah, I don't know how I do with uh I'm on the computer though. Oh, you can't pick up pick up the computer and kind of walk around? I'm not on a laptop. Oh, you're not. Oh, that's too bad. Well yeah, maybe maybe for the next time we'll we'll do a tour of your studio. Yeah. But I mean, I have just like, you know, I've got the color wheel. It's actually on this side. Mm -hmm. That's the workshop I teach in. That's exactly what you were saying earlier, which is a light to dark version of every color. So I kind of walk students through almost like a Rosetta stone of like, you know, if you could plot your pigments on a color wheel, you could then have a better idea of like what black, what black is, what brown is, because brown's really not its own, its own thing. It's like brown is a, a, a dark version of something, you know, mm -hmm. for me, being able to take burnt umber and saying like, it's a dark red orange was way more helpful if I was, I, I was in the red orange family and trying to grab a, a, trying to make it darker, you know, mm -hmm. rather than grab like black 
black or something. So ivory black is like a deep purple blue. So so kind of like navigating it in a, in a smart way. That was to me the the skeleton key that really just kind of made everything make sense to me when it came to color. Yeah. So, but I do have a ton of pets around here. Do yeah? Oh, I wish I could see. So this is your studio behind you. Then is it part of your home? Yeah, I'm in the attic. Um, we moved here just before COVID, and one of these days I'm gonna get the studio all back. But we're renting a cottage to uh, a tenant, and we didn't want to kick her out, especially at the time. But that'll be my studio. So until then, I'm up in this super hot <laughs> attic. <laughs> Well, but I got like my own computer space over here and then there's like plenty of space over there. I have three still life setups going at one time always. That's great. Well, you know, this has been an awesome conversation and um, I have, I do have one last question for you because hopefully, as I said earlier, artists will be listening to this and maybe some aspiring artists. If you had one piece of advice that we haven't already given, um, what would it be for an aspiring artist? a tough one i mean i guess um the best thing i could say for any teacher to a student would be learn how to keep learning um it, it's kind of like the narrative of like what you and i've been talking about is like understand understand why um because when you do that you empower yourself just like you were saying like you couldn't just remember stuff if it if it didn't make sense to you but if you can teach them to keep keep learning uh, and intentionally, you know, like good stuff, meaningful learning, I think they'll get further than, you know, some people say like mileage, just like 10,000 hour rules. But I think if you have meaningful, like 10,000 hours, I think you'll get a lot further. Hopefully okay. That's, I, that's usually my last question, but I do want to see and know what books that you've written. And do you have those with you? Yeah, I got um, I got the Art of Still Life, which is the one uh, you got two copies of, I think now, right? Yeah, one for your studio, two one copies. Yeah, that's right. So there's that, and then I got um, so serendipitously, you know, the the editor on that book was this guy named James Waller, and he wrote a book called Drinkology, um, and I was like, well, you wrote a book called Drinkology, and it sold like seventy thousand copies. Cause he started to be like, that's the wrong glassware in your painting. And I was like, Oh, who are you kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, so when we were done with that, I said, Hey James, would you want to do a cocktail, uh, book where I do the paintings and you do like the recipes? And he said, sure. So oh, that's cool. We just, yeah. I'll send you one. Really? Uh, That'd be so awesome. This, Don't forget to sign yeah, it. This, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, but this comes out um, and it has just a ton of like all my work in it. Um, so it's like cocktail recipes, but then they, they had like another like 50 or 60 pages and then they just uh, filled it with artwork. So it, it's amazing. And it's only like $25. It's like so cheap. Um, and then awesome. I got another book coming out in uh, October called the oil painters color handbook. I got to get you in one of these books. I got it. I'm going to get that one too. I'm definitely going to get that one too. In one of them. Maybe oh, I'd the be next honored. One. Well, you were you were in my file of like contact Jeff. I'm not even joking, because um, you use a lot of awesome color in your work, and not a lot of people do. Like you're not afraid of color. I, I love color. Right. Yeah. Um, I appreciate this. It's been 
an amazing conversation and I want to pick your brain some more sometime and maybe get a do interview again and get a nice tour of your studio and see some of your collection and some of your paintings and yeah, uh, on the easel. So thank you again. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the undraped artist podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe. And if you could leave a comment or review that really helps the channel. Please share the show with your friends, and if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week.